Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week, I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. Let us sing this song for the dreaming of the world That we may dream as one With every voice, with every song We will move this world along We've got a special treat for you today for Spirit in Action. I'm going to turn things over to Robert Wolf in a moment and he's going to take you on a visit to Pine Ridge Reservation of South Dakota to learn firsthand about the experience of life and spirit on the reservation. Robert Wolf did the interviews at Pine Ridge as part of the radio series he does called American Mosaic. But Robert does much more than radio programs, and I'll have him back soon as a guest talking about some of the books he's written and the change he's trying to make in the U.S. land and culture scape. I'll be back next week, but for today, I'm pleased to leave you in the hands of a spirit in action, Robert Wolf, as he pursues more spirit at the Pine Ridge Reservation. I'm Robert Wolf. Welcome to American Mosaic, a production of Free River Press. Tell me your story that makes you a part. A great conversation Tell me your heart American Mosaic is a weekly half-hour compendium of writings, interviews, and music that take us across country from Midwest farmhouses to Mississippi Delta cotton fields from Manhattan offices to ranches on the Great Plains American Mosaic is based on writings of everyday folk created in Free River Press writing workshops and is devoted to the search for contemporary America. This edition is but one episode of the American story, a piece of the continental mosaic. Pine Ridge Reservation lies in the southwest corner of South Dakota. Its people call themselves Oglala Lakota. For over a century, their history on Pine Ridge has been a record of white atrocity and indifference to suffering. 
Today, Oglala Lakota tribal members live in a third world of 3,468 square miles within U.S. borders. No one is certain how many Lakota live on Pine Ridge. Some say close to 16,000. Some say 29,000. Yet Jim Berg, executive director for Oglala Sioux Lakota Housing, says it's closer to 40,000. Whatever number you pick, the situation is astounding. Heart disease, alcoholism, and diabetes are epidemic. Tribal members have, at lowest estimate, an 80% unemployment rate. 49% live below the federal poverty level. Median income is $6,286. The Pine Ridge Casino draws so few gamblers that if tribal members were to share its profits, each would receive 15 cents a month. Among the countries in the Western Hemisphere, only Haiti has a lower life expectancy than Pine Ridge. Oglala Lakota men average 48 years, the women 52. Seventy percent of Pine Ridge students drop out before high school graduation. With all these problems, it is no wonder that the tribe's teen suicide rate is 150 percent higher than the national teen average. How did this once great tribe that hunted over vast buffalo lands become reduced to such extremities? Mike Hermeny Horses, chairman of the board of directors of Ogala Sioux Tribal Partnership for Housing, and the Lakota Nation's ambassador to Western Europe, is also an unofficial tribal historian. I met with him in his office at the Tribal Partnership for Housing and asked him what life was like for the Lakota before they came to Pine Ridge. A person's principal responsibility to life in life is to take care of their young, their children to provide for them and to put that in jeopardy was one of the greatest um, misgivings that a leader could do so consequently everything was held communal our leaders knew when the buffalo would migrate and when they knew when the antelope and deer were plentiful they knew what time of the season to take them they knew when the the land would provide food, whether it be herbal or berries or whatever, when when they were available. So consequently, that's what their life revolved around. My recording engineer Carl Cooley and I are in South Dakota, driving up a highway on the Pine Ridge Reservation to the site of the Wounded Knee Massacre. It's a warm July afternoon. On our right, the land slopes up with a church atop the hill. I recognize this as the site of the massacre. Two pillars with an arch closer to the road mark the gateway to the mass grave. On our left is an asphalt parking area for tourists. We pull over. At a nearby stand, three or four Lakotas are selling beaded jewelry. When I don't see anything I want, one of the Lakotas tells me to follow him across the parking lot to another stand where he has some jewelry. I buy a pendant for my wife and we begin talking. His name is Larry Thunderhorse. 
a tall, lanking man, dark-skinned with a ponytail wearing a yellow T-shirt and jeans. Larry's friendly and likes to talk. In fact, he's almost an unofficial docent for the Wounded Knee Massacre site. On his table, loaded with beaded jewelry and other items, is a large photo album with photocopies of newspaper clippings of the 1973 siege of Wounded Knee, when federal marshals and FBI shot it out with members of the American Indian movement. The other man at Larry's table is his brother Frank, bare-chested with two braids falling over either side of his chest. Frank Thunderhorse has the noble classic looks of his forebears. He doesn't speak much. I ask Larry to tell me about Chiefs Bigfoot and Red Cloud and the events leading up to the Wounded Knee Massacre. He came here for protection, shelter, and food for the winter months. And he also came to Chief Redcloud for negotiations. Chief Redcloud had a good tongue with the white man. And the white man listened to him. The year is 1890, 14 years after General George Armstrong Custer and the 7th Cavalry were wiped out by the combined forces of Lakota, Northern Cheyenne, and Arapaho warriors under the leadership of Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse. The buffalo herds are nearly extinct. Some estimate that in 1860, 60 million buffalo ranged across America. By 1890, their number has dwindled to a mere 790. Without this food source, Plains Indians are compelled to accept the white man's reservations. Some say the extermination of the buffalo is U.S. government policy but matters are worse. The U.S. Congress is not fulfilling its treaty obligations to feed and clothe the Indians now that their food and clothing source is gone. Nor are Congress and the Army protecting Indian reservations from the encroachment of settlers and miners or the corruption of Indian agents. In this time of suffering, a prophet appears among the Plains Indians, a Paiute named Wovoka. He has been transported into heaven where he has learned that Jesus Christ is about to return, and on his return the white man will disappear from the earth. A new earth will arise, the buffalo will return, and departed Indians will reappear. To prepare for the Messiah's second coming, Wovoka teaches the ghost dance, which spreads across the reservations. The whites are frightened. The Indian agents are frightened. When General Nelson Miles prepares for another Indian campaign, Short Bull and Kicking Bear lead their people to the northwest corner of Pine Ridge. They send a message for Sitting Bull to join them. But before he can, Sitting Bull is arrested by Indian police and killed. It is now December. General Miles orders the arrest of Chief Bigfoot to the Minikanju. Bigfoot and his band of 400 starving men, women, and children head south, seeking refuge with Red Cloud, a friend of the Whites. Bigfoot ill with pneumonia, rides in a wagon. But before he can find Red Cloud, Bigfoot and his band are intercepted by the 7th Cavalry and brought to Wounded Knee Creek. Frank, Carl, and I watch and listen as Larry dramatizes the massacre, 
pointing out where the 7th Cavalry troops were positioned. And up here, up this road, about four miles, you're going to come across another plaque. Not as large as that one, but it's going to say Chief Bigfoot Surrenders. And this is where they brought him. And the next morning, after the disarmament of the 44 warriors, they said, you're going to, the uh, 7th Cavalry agreed, said, you're going to hear a gunshot, rifle shot. She had a, <clears throat> right above that ridge right there, right above the road, you could see a hill. They had one Hotchkiss cannon facing. See, the encampment was at the base of this hill. Yeah. And there's one Hotchkiss cannon facing in, too. And they had the warriors lined up from east to west. And they took away their pistols. Uh, if you go to Pine Ridge, Sioux Nation Shopping Center, ask them where the book the uh, native book area is the bookstore they'll show you buy that book called Massacre of Wounded Knee you had two Hotchkiss cannons in between on foot you had A&I troop armed down the side that hill by the other Hotchkiss cannon you had a 38 the 37th uh, Cavalry. And on this flat, north to south, you had A and B troop, foot soldiers. And their encampment was right here on this side, on the south, or uh, the east of this hill, where they had lined up their tents. But uh, the uh, mini Kanju encampment was at the base, the tents. Mounted across the ravine, which runs east to west, you had C and D with their sabers drawn, swords. So they agreed, after the disarmament, you're going to hear that rifle shot commence the slaughter. So they, they went after the warriors did that. Fired. And they mowed them down. Boom, 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 boom. We come up with 797 present. 754 killed. Yeah, the, the, the sign is BS. I do not believe that sign. I never will. Read that book, Massacre of Wounded Knee. Okay. It's Who a paperback book. book. Who wrote that book? Uh, I forget the author, but you read it. And it got the 43 survivors that were taken, that were after four days later, were taken to Pine Ridge Episcopal Church. They turned the church into a makeshift hospital. And no white doctors wanted to, to help them. So they sent for Charles Eastman up in North Dakota, Standing Rock. And they brought him down here. He was a native, he sits in Wapton, Sioux, from East River, on that side of Missouri. They brought him down here, and he's the one that doctored to help.
What is life on Pine Ridge Reservation like today? Me, I, I don't see it as a hard living, a hard life at all, because I made the choice to live my life here on the reservation. And What's it like to grow up with Kyle? Uh, is that? What do you, what do, you uh, do every day? Every day is, I just break horses. So where do you break horses? Uh, out to my dad and my Uncle Bill. What's it like to live out here? And uh... oh man, it's retarded, man. Well, how so? What? That's how so right there. Alcohol is always flowing through everything. It, isn't it? Uh, this is a dry reservation, isn't it? Not anymore. Never was. Everybody thinks it is, but it's not. Where do you hope? Where do you hope to be five, ten years from now? Uh, probably working. Probably off the rest. Probably. Working, working somewhere else besides here. Uh, what I want to major in is like a, uh, my own company, like being an entrepreneur or something like that. Business? Yeah. Do you think, why would you want to do that here? Mm, I know you could do it around here too, but you know, everything's kind of slow around here. Why is that? Uh, you know, like the economics and stuff. That's, that's just about it. It's just the way life is around here. But it's not all about drinking. Either. Yeah, it's not all about. Everybody always comes around this middle. Everybody always comes around this bitch. Always telling, you know, that it's all about this and that. No, it's not. You just gotta have a good time. You know, it's the way it's gonna be. Well, because I made the choice to put down the alcohol and you know put down the drugs and live like a normal person, and it seems to be getting me by. It's all about the choice, you know. A lot of us have choices, and some of them made the choice to be drunk all day, you know. Yeah. Yeah. What's, your, what's your take on it? On living out here? Yeah. And he's from California. It can be real peaceful, man. It's more peaceful than the cities. You don't have to worry about locking your car mm-hmm. like over in the cities. So. And, and look, 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 this is this is the only time it's getting wild and crazy. And the people here are really giving. They, like, you know, they don't hold nothing back. Like, if they get a bunch of money, they'll just mm-hmm. give it away right away. Yeah. Yeah. Not plan for the future. They just spend all their money and they live like, oh, it's all right, we'll make it. Once confined to Pine Ridge Reservation, the Oglala Lakota's traditional life and culture began disintegrating at an increased pace. The men's traditional roles as hunters and providers disappeared. Alcoholism increased. Traditional religion was threatened by Christianity. All this has made life painful and pointless to many of the young who began seeing suicide as the better alternative to life on the reservation. Eileen Jennis is the outreach person for Sweetgrass Youth Suicide Prevention Program on Pine Ridge. Eileen is a traditionalist, and much of her effectiveness with the young is due to her grounding in Lakota religion. Well, a long time ago, the men hunted. They um, made sure, you know, that all the family was taken care of. And like when a young uh, baby, if it's a male, reached two years old, they took him to teach him how to, you know, butcher and how to 
preserved meat and how to do, you know, all of this, you know, to take care of the family. And nowadays, the men, there's no jobs. What do we have, 80% unemployment here? There's no jobs. Um, the women are going to school. The women are getting all the benefits they can to keep the kids going. And the men are just sitting there. And so, like, even when you bury somebody, my brother, a medicine man, he said, you know, men bury people. The men do it. You know, not the women. And nowadays, you see women even getting in there, taking the shovels and 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 bearing, just taking all these little jobs away from them. And the men have, uh, we've lost them. So any men right now that speak Lakota, they end their sentences like a woman because there's a way a man ends it and a way a woman ends it. But they speak like a woman because their grandmas taught them or their moms taught them. And um, they've just, they can't do that anymore. And you can't just go out and hunt anymore because now they got license and they got all this, you know, and that. And that you have to follow and, and they don't have the money to do that. So they have just given up, really. So the women are we're the backbone and uh, the men have just fallen out of the picture. But was the, was, were the, the uh, Lakota always a matriarchal society? He, that's what they say, you know, but we still had respect. The men, it was always headmen, not chas. They were the ones who spoke. They did ask the women, you know, what do you think about it? But they're the ones who made the final decision on anything with the tribe or the families. What, where did this come from? Did someone we talked to said it was a matriarchal society. It is. The women do have a, a say in it, but they're the ones that take care of the houses and well, I mean, you know, keep it clean. They had their roles. And they really listen to the grandmothers. They respect them. That's what it is. Because that's what the sweat lodge is. It's the womb of, of mother, the mother. And um, But women play a big role. But they do not take away the role of the men. And uh, many have done that. So they're running the families. And also with Lakotas, um, the firstborn, if it's a son... They're babies, you know. They, they, uh, they. Everything is done for them, and um, I don't know. They just need more jobs, and now the women are more aggressive and more loud. Where they used to sit back and, like, if it was me and my oldest son, he would do the talking, and I would sit back and let him talk because he was the male. Because his dad died, so that's why he would be the next one to talk. But they don't do that anymore. So women will jump up before elderly men, and you shouldn't do that, you know. So if you were going to say something, I got to shut up. I got to listen. But if, uh, but I don't do that anymore. A lot of things are just lost. We lost so much. The strongest thing we can do is pray. Pray that we can get back. Not living in teepees and not, you know, that way. But our values and 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 the way. We should be to each other. Because what we learn now from... What they took away from us was spirituality. So I say that's the first thing that went wrong. Because they taught us dog eat dog. They taught us we're going to throw a few crumbs out. The, you know, the one who's the loudest or strongest is going to get the most. And that's what we're taught now. That's what adults do now. So I, that's why I tell the kids I'd rather be around you than adults. Because... I said, how many of you, you kids, I said, did your parents 
run somebody down and when then when they see them they say oh hi how are you doing good to see you and but help each other don't bully don't don't be like the adults let's change this reservation be good to each other and help each other don't be like the adults you know and and they really li- the young men really listened the girls were chatty and stuff but the young men i could just see them all they they were just focused on what i was saying and i thought that's awesome you know because so much has been taken away from our men we need to build them up again through our young men you know give it back to them their roles and uh they um one girl one girl one girl got up and said one lady was just what happened to walk in she said you're wrong these kids have everything they have more than we had when we were growing up so i looked at her and i thought you don't do that you know she said they have computers they have ipods they have you know all these things i said but it hurts them it hurts them more they don't see the trees they don't see the energy they pick up from the grasses and from the air you know they don't understand that part they've missed it they have it worse but i let her go you're listening to spirit in action a northern spirit radio production and that's website northernspiritradio.org Normally, I, Mark Helps Meet, act as your host, but today Robert Wolf is sitting in for me, sharing material he gathered for his American Mosaic radio program. Track Robert down at AmericanMosaic.org and listen to all the shows he produces. Today he's taking us to South Dakota, the Pine Ridge Reservation. Thanks to Robert Wolf for filling in today for Spirit in Action. Back over to you, Robert. There are other reasons for the present circumstances on Pine Ridge. Mark St. Pierre is eloquent when he speaks of them. St. Pierre, published author and NEA Fellow for Creative Nonfiction, is co-owner with his Lakota wife of a bed and breakfast on Pine Ridge. St. Pierre holds a BA in Community Development. He is passionate on the subject and the role federal policy has played in creating the present crisis on Pine Ridge. At the turn of the century, slightly before the turn of the century, the government bought into a philosophy of the vanishing red man and the idea amongst each Eastern intellectuals, I guess, was that that through miscegenation and uh, disease, alcoholism, and a variety of other ways, that Indian people would vanish and that it wouldn't be a problem in perpetuity because... uh, there would be no Native Americans, and so their thinking in terms of solutions was very short-term. As a result of that, they never saw large Native communities, you know, having an economy, an internal economy, serving each other goods, you know, providing each other with goods and services. As a result of that, uh, there never was any thought that, you know, there should be any transition from the traditional economy of buffalo and trading with the world in terms of buffalo pelts and and the kinds of things that made Lakota people rich in the 19th century. There was just the thought that we have to come up with short-term solutions because these people are going to disappear. Well, in fact of the matter, that didn't happen. And so in the late 20th century, early 21st century, we have large communities that have no internal economic structure. We have no uh, retail buildings. We have no central sewer systems. We have no uh, nothing that would resemble what non-Indian people take for granted. 
And that has been to the benefit of border towns for 140 years, and it's been very purposeful. In Lakota, the term for suffering uh, slang today is trechi, and it comes from otrechika, and it means to suffer. And the suffering of the people today, the short lifespans, the the poverty, the uh, stress, the constant struggle to survive benefits the border towns. And that means that every federal dollar that flows in here via police department, uh, the hospital system, health care, education, all those people, many of whom are Lakota, uh, have to spend their income right off the reservation, which enriches towns like Rapid City, Hot Springs, Shadron, Nebraska, um, and that relationship is now cut in stone. And so uh, actually the state of dependency is now preserved purposely uh, by the dominant society economy. By 1973, life on Pine Ridge had hit rock bottom. Dennis Banks, in his memoir, Ojibwa Warrior, describes Pine Ridge in 1973 as a scene of desolation. Banks, now a successful businessman, was once a leader of the American Indian movement. Most people, Banks wrote, thinking back on his time in Pine Ridge, lived in tar paper shacks without running water, electricity, or indoor plumbing. Some lived in small, ancient log cabins with dirt floors. By Banks' estimate, about three-quarters of Pine Ridge residents were without decent housing. The unemployment rate was astronomical. There was not even one food store or bank. A mixed blood named Dick Wilson was tribal chairman. During 1972, in his first year in office, Wilson helped start a tribal housing authority on Pine Ridge. He also handed out jobs to mixed-blood friends and relatives, a fact that angered full-blood Lakotas. A year later, in February 1973, three tribal council members introduced a case of impeachment against Wilson. Two of the charges brought against him were nepotism and the appropriation of tribal funds for his own use. To the charge of nepotism, Wilson replied, there is nothing in tribal law against nepotism. To the anger of many, the impeachment case was closed by the presiding chair. The breach between traditionalists and the mixed bloods of Wilson's camp widened. Federal marshals arrived at Pine Ridge Village to keep the peace. In the meantime, violence against Indians in border towns along the reservation brought the American Indian movement, AIM, to Pine Ridge Reservation. AIM was an activist movement. And in 1972, AIM had occupied the BIA building in Washington, D.C. and started a riot in Custer, South Dakota, which resulted in the trashing of two police cars, damage to the courthouse, and the burning of the Custer Chamber of Commerce. One of AIM's leaders, Russell Means, is an Oglala Lakota tribal member. In February 1973, Russell Means sent a tape-recorded message to Dennis Banks in nearby Rapid City, where Banks and other AIM members were dealing with local Indian civil rights issues. Means asked Banks and the others to come to Pine Ridge. 
trouble was brewing. What ensued was a 71-day siege outside Wounded Knee Village at the site of the 1890 massacre. The siege was often violent and deepened divisions between tribal members. Opinions are divided on AIM, on the siege, and on its leaders. Larry Thunderhorse, a traditionalist who lives at Wounded Knee Village, is selling beaded jewelry at the site of the massacre, which is where AIM chose to make its stand. Larry has a book of news stories on the occupation. Is this in 73? This was 73. You can read it, the caption. Participants in the Wounded Knee standoff line up to get their faces painted. Bunkers used by riflemen during the periodic gun battle with federal officers during the standoff are partway up the hill toward the Sacred Heart Church. And these are the federal marshals. When you get up on top of the hill, there's a flat. This is them. They had a um, roadblock up there. Every high point, they had armored personnel carriers, U.S. Marshals, shooting in with 50 calibers. They, the government, see, they're they're, they're, uh, negotiating. American Indian Movement is negotiating with senators. Yeah, Burzik, whatever his name is in. Aberesk. Aberesk. George McGovern. So they were here during the standoff. Mm-hmm. They came in to um, negotiate peace. Yeah. Because of Richard Dick Wilson, he was our tribal president who was very corrupt. He was embezzling. He uh, took. He had a um, a force called Goon Squad. Goon means guardians of the Oglala Nation, which they were not. They were terrorizing, raping young women. Uh, anybody hitchhiking, they'd come and terrorize them and beat them up. Especially, they, they, they didn't appreciate people with long hair. The goons were made up of half-breeds, part white, part, part Oglala. And that's who he employed. Mm-hmm. He got three ranches out that he embezzled. He took away the, our education money. Our he took a lot away. So that's why our elders got together, had a meeting, and invited Aim to come and take him out. Okay. Aim is a. Uh, um, uh, activist organization that fights for human rights just like the Black Panthers they will fight for your human rights if you are being done wrong you call them and they'll come and they'll straighten out the wrong the the discrimination so that's why our elders went against him because of his terrorist organization he was like Saddam Hussein and he's very corrupt he bought one ranch in Arizona, two ranches, two ranches in uh, Oglala, north of Pine Ridge. We have, <clears throat> on our reservation to this date, 68 unsolved murders and deaths. Call. 
Another point of view about Dick Wilson and AIM is expressed by Tom Casey, General Manager of Keeley Radio, the community radio station on Pine Ridge Reservation. Tom is white, a single parent with three daughters who are enrolled members of the Oglala Lakota tribe. He has been on Keeley's payroll since 1989. Before that, he taught at Oglala Lakota College. AIM tore this place up. I mean, in Moondini, that whole thing, it, it, it split the community, not only just the community of Moondini, but it split the tribe. You know, Dick Wilson and his supporters, they were called goons at the time, they were totally against AIM. They didn't want AIM here. They didn't want AIM to celebrate their victory in Washington, D.C. Yeah, that took place, a Trail of Broken Treaties, in the fall of 82. Um, they didn't want that. They didn't want that celebrated. They wanted to take a different path. AIM was much more confrontational, and, and they had a different way of going about it. They ended up taking over Wounded Knee. Was it planned? Was it an accident? Who knows? But it was a 71-day occupation. So even in the community of Wounded Knee, there were people who supported it and some who didn't. I mean, let's face it, it totally disrupted the life in Wounded Knee. You know, you had it was an occupation. Finally, after the first week or so, you had roadblocks, and you had U.S. Marshals, you had FBI, and then you had a war. You actually had war with skirmishing going on, and firefights every night, even 50 caliber machine guns. And and at one point, they made a request to Fort Carson Army Base in outside of Colorado Springs for artillery. They never got that, but there are armored personnel carriers rolling around the hills around Wounded Knee, and it went for 71 days. Um, and it was surreal. You had um, um, flares going up to light it up to try and keep track of anybody coming in or out, and they would fall to the ground and light a prairie fire or fall on a building and burn a building. I mean, so you know, U.S. senators from South Dakota, James Aburzek and George McGovern, arrived at Wounded Knee to negotiate between the two sides. By the end of the siege. Two Indians had been killed and one FBI agent left paralyzed. The government had deployed 15 armored personnel carriers, along with rifles, grenade launchers, flares, and 133,000 rounds of ammunition. The total cost of the government's action was over half a million dollars. Larry Thunderhorse was a young boy during the siege. Terrible. There's a lot of boom, 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 boom. Machine gun fire. Armed AIM warriors were barricaded in buildings that were shredded by government gunfire. That's why the government burnt down the church, the museum, the, uh, the uh, store, the cabins. Uh, they had a horseback ride. Thing. They employed none but Lakota. They employed Indians, my aunties, my uncles, my cousins. They all worked there. Pumping gas, fixing tires. Larry says that during the siege, he lived over the hill in Wounded Knee Village. Our school bus driver used to have a standby to approach over there. And he'd pull up and pick us up, take us to Okay, one morning he pulled up. Flat tire, bullet holes all over the bus, windows busted out. He was all beat up, he, black eye, bruised lip. He said, you, 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 
fucking Indians are crazy. You said, I don't know what got into you guys, but you guys are crazy. No school today. He said, I'm getting the hell out of here. I'm going to Rapid City. Well, I still got my life. And he took off. To beat him up. Aim. Aim beat Aim, him up. Aim, yeah. They took over the store. First thing. They took over the store and they took over the Catholic Church. And then they seen him coming, so they stopped him and... Shot up the bus, busted the windows, beat up our bus driver. He said, no school today, kids. He said, you guys are crazy. Your people are crazy. At the time, I didn't understand what AIM was about. And now I understand that they stick up for Native American rights. When you're getting discriminated against, prejudiced, whatever, something bad happened to a native, AIM will be there to take up for you. Not to, you know, to put you down, but to take up for you, to stand for your rights, your human rights. You have human rights. I have human rights. He has human rights. We all have human rights that have to be respected. I respect you. I respect you. You're the color yellow. You're the color white. I'm the color red, brown skins. And black represents Africans. We're all created as brothers and sisters under the eyes of the Wakantaka, the great spirit, God. Whatever you call him, your Messiah or whatever, but I call him Wakantaka, the great spirit. And he will take up for us. You know, spiritually we're created as brothers and sisters under his eyes. Because we all bleed red. The Wounded Knee Siege bore bad and good fruit. AIM had sought to give Native Americans a positive vision of themselves, which meant embracing traditional spirituality. Central to Lakota spirituality are sweat lodges, vision quests, and the Sundance. Tom Casey. Before Wounded Knee happened in 1973, the Sundance that took place on Pine Ridge was one Sundance in Pine Ridge Village. And it was a Sundance that included. It was a Sundance, a powwow, a rodeo, and a carnival. All at the same place, all on the same grounds. After Wounded Knee, the Sundance alone was taken out of Pine Ridge, uh, Fool's Crow. Uh, we took it to Three Mile Creek, and he that's where the Sundance started again uh, after 73, and it became just a Sundance. No recorders, no cameras, total respect for what was happening there, Lakota spirituality, and that's what it was, a Sundance, nothing else. And from that, we have seen an explosion of Sundances. So now instead of just one tribal Sundance, over a summer we may have 50 or 60 Sundances going on. We may have a Sundance with as few people dancing as three to five people that represent a Teoshbai. So it's really a Teoshbai Sundance. 
and as many as 120 or 140 that come together like at Jerome LeBeau Sundance. Um, so from one end to the other, uh, and so 50 to 60 Sundances that take place that offer an opportunity for young, actually Lakota people of all ages, but many of them are younger people who can learn and participate in a traditional Lakota spiritual way. So that's one thing that's come out of Wounded Knee, that celebration, that explosion of traditional Lakota spirituality, that it's okay, not only okay, that it's, it's a great way to go to deal with to deal with your life, to base your life on, maybe to deal with struggles with alcohol and uh, drugs, or to help your family, to, to sacrifice for those four days, and in those four days to be, to sacrifice and to pray, to pray for your family, to pray for your community, pray for your nation, uh, and, and so those opportunities have just tremendously expanded since 1973. Eileen Ginnis is a volunteer for Sweetgrass, a youth suicide prevention program on Pine Ridge. Sweetgrass is um, like sage. It helps to cleanse you. So when I burn it, you see the smoke. When you take it and you put it over, you ask Tinkashila to take those bad feelings out of you, to keep you feeling good, to say whatever you need to say to the kids to encourage and help them feel good and you pray for the youth also I always pray for them because they do have it tough and uh, I grew up with traditional the sweat lodge and the teachings of that way where um, when they grow up through the church they don't learn the same they don't have the same understandings of things you know and through the sweat lodge you do and it's because uh, it's not really a religion it, it's a way of life so that's why I I just wanted to work with youth. I wanted to help them. All I'm doing is teaching the kids how to pray. I said, I don't care who you pray to. You know, if it's God, if it's Tunkashila, whoever, just so you learn to pray. And I tell them a tear is their first prayer. There's a tear is a prayer. And if you cry, it's okay. It's going to help your body, you know. But... um. They really get on me for doing tradition. Even some of the council people that have been, I say brainwashed, um, get, say you shouldn't be teaching them that. So then I have the medicine men saying, standing up saying, why? That's what they need to learn. And then they back off on me. But it's um, Christianity has hurt us a lot because we lost our ways. Do you get any of the youngsters into sweat lodges? Yeah, a lot of them. And uh, I, I used to use, like Robert, the one that sings that you met yesterday. We have one behind my house. And uh, so he gets a lot of the youth that, um, young men mostly, a lot of them, uh, that don't want to drink. They're tired of looking over their shoulders from being in gangs. They... Um, that one day, one of them, old as my son, came in and he just cried. And I said, just cry. You know, let it out. You're human. Everybody cries. You know, you don't have to be this big, tough guy. And he did. And he said, and Eileen, all my life, I would go home. I'd be hungry. I'd, be, I'd want this and that. And he'd say, they beat me up. Tell me, shut up. 
you know, and he said, so I just go out on the street. My friends say, well, let's go here or let's go there. And, and they, they were the family. And then they get mad at them for having gangs. And that's the only support system they have a lot of times. But I get a lot of the young people in sweat. And I really have to give my sons credit because it's hard to hear these stories. And I... Um, they both would help me on suicides and uh, I, I would find them crying because of the, the young person's story of how hard they have it. And I tell my boys, you know, they're, they're both, I think AJ's a little bigger than Robert. So they're, Robert's like 6'2", AJ's 6'3", 6'4", both big guys. But they will cry in front of the kids in sweat and show them it's okay. And, um, but it did take a toll on them. So I, I said, you guys don't have to. You know, I don't want to hurt you because this is hard. It, it really is hard work to do with hearing all of this. And, um, but they both are still there for me when I need them. But it, it is tough on them. And, uh, and I always think that's so cool. They help each other, you know, and in the sweat lodge, what happens in there stays in there. So it don't go out and it don't, it don't go anywhere. But with the yearning for wholeness through Lakota spirituality has come a dark figure. Our suicides, did Tom Casey tell you about the dark spirit? No. When a lot of our youth went before they attempt or before they die, they tell about this tall tall man dressed all in black and he can't see his face and um, he's standing either outside the window or he's on a playground he's telling them come on let's go see and um, many of them many of them have seen him so suicide's kind of spiritual around here and and so some of the younger ones when they're in that weak state, when they're in that state where nobody loves me, nobody cares, what future do I have? I'm going to end up like this anyway, you know. Um, that's when they come to get you, when you show weakness. And many of our youth are weak. So they even brought in these four old men from Wyoming, from the Arapaho, who only bring out red cedar and pray with it when that happens, the stark spirit. Because he was in... Wyoming, and they had a rash of suicides. Oklahoma had a rash of suicides. Uh, North Dakota. But they only done it at their home. They came here, and they they prayed with that red cedar. And um, a lot of the youth didn't see the uh, dark spirit for a while, but now he's back. And uh, he says he's going to take a lot with him. He told the medicine men in ceremonies, different ones, that he opened his his coat. He said, look. And he could see all kinds of people inside there with him. And he said, these are the ones I'm going to take. And, uh, but our youth from all over the res have seen it. Even some older people have seen it. So they take their kids and they go pray with them and everything, but... There's a dark spirit out there, so he's called Wichunte, the death spirit. So that's why this sage, an eagle bone whistle, and the pipe will keep him away. 
So whenever we have a gathering of youth, I always try to just burn it at different places to keep the place safe. And the kids really feel it, too. They know they're okay. But there's so much to this, you know? It's hard to sum it all up. Tom Casey. So there, there is today, even today, which is like 38 years after Wounded Knee, what were the benefits of Wounded Knee? What came out of Wounded Knee? And there's definitely people who say nothing, absolutely nothing. And there are other people who take a, a bigger picture of you and say, no, there's a lot who came out of Wounded Knee. I mean, it was part of the Native American process of standing on their two feet and saying, hey, it's time that we did it. It's time that we made decisions. It's time that we decided how we were going to live or decided on what values are important and the stress and things like that. You've been listening to a special edition of Spirit in Action with Robert Wolf of AmericanMosaic.org subbing for me. Thanks to Robert and the many guests who shared on this visit to the Pine Ridge Reservation of South Dakota. May their spirits and yours blossom and thrive. And may you join me next week here for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. This Spirit in Action program is an effort of Northern Spirit Radio. You can listen to our programs and find links and information about us and our guests on our website, northernspiritradio.org. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Mark Helpsmeet, and I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice.